we are in part three of our series, Our Cross. And uh, we got one more week. Next week is Palm Sunday, and we'll do part four. And then we're going to take a week off and do uh, Easter. And then we'll do part five. And then once we're done with part five, we're going to be moving into, am I on? Good, Cody? I got a green light. All right, just making sure. Sorry. Then we're going to do, uh, the next series is going to be on the resurrection. And I'm really excited about that. But let's recap of where we've been so far. And the first is, first week we looked at the fact that the cross is foolishness. The cross is foolish. This world is based on winning, on doing well, on coming out ahead. My grandfather, uh, he used to read books by Horatio Alger, and probably most of you, some of you might be, uh, know of him. He was an author and wrote a very popular series of books back in the early 1900s. And the, the theme of most of Horatio Alger's books were, you start, they're all about these young men, and it started with, they started down on their luck, they were orphans or whatever, and the whole theme of the book was how they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. I read one of them because uh, my grandfather was reading one when he unexpectedly passed away, and so I picked it up and, and read it. And the whole point of the story is this, this young man who just, he, he starts off in a bad way, but through hard work and determination, he builds himself up. And that's kind of, that's, we call that the American way, but it's kind of the whole world system of, hey, you need to win, succeed, get ahead, achieve, go places. And so the cross, as we said, represents loss. The cross represents giving up and letting go and, that's, and losing and losing. And that's stupid. Why would you ever embrace that? And so we talked about the foolish cross that goes against our world system. And then we talked about what do you boast in? And again, we, we usually want to celebrate success. We want to celebrate what we think of as good things. And we talked about last week boasting not in our work, not how good we are or how successful we are, even how successful we are spiritually, but boasting in the work of Jesus, on boasting in the cross, on his work, not ours. Now, we live in very divided times. And so when it comes to these times especially, and I think this has always been true, the big question is, well, who's the enemy? Who are we against? Who are we guarding against? And one of our sister denominations, we're not Southern Baptists, but I have a lot of Southern Baptist friends, and, and uh, the Southern Baptist denomination right now, uh, or the association uh, convention, is, is being really shredded. It's, it's being torn apart from the inside because of different factions. And these are all people who believe the basic same things that we do. They believe that the Bible is the word of God. They believe that Jesus is the way to salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection of, on the cross. They, they believe all the same stuff, but then they have some differences on how to message or how to deal with certain issues. And some of these are fairly profound differences. And so they're just kind of at war with each other. Some of you might have seen where Beth Moore just came out and said, you know, I'm done with being a Southern Baptist. And they treat each other like enemies. Like, you are an enemy. You are, and, and, and it's happening right within, within a Baptist denomination. But that's, that's true if you go over to the Middle East. One of the things back when we had the Iraq War, and there were two, there's, you know, and that's a Muslim country, but you have the Shia, the Shiite Muslims and the Sunni Muslims, and they're both Muslim. They both, again, share the basic tenets of Islam, and yet they fight and kill each other 
because the other brand of following Allah and Muhammad is different. So we, we always looking for who's the enemy? Who's the enemy? Maybe it's a political enemy. You know, maybe it's a personal enemy. Maybe, you know, whatever. Who's the enemy? And oftentimes I think we misunderstand that. So what makes an enemy biblically? And as we talk about the cross, what's the definition of an Emily? An, an Emily? Sorry, if your name's Emily, I didn't mean you. Sorry. Enemy. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. Excuse me. Philippians chapter 3, 12 through 21. Follow along as we read. Now, as we come into this, Paul's been talking about the cross. If you look in Philippians 3, uh, 7 and 8, he talks about how everything is a loss to him. The cross is lost. We talked about that. So he's talked about the cross. He's talked about his pursuit of God. In verse 10, he talks about the resurrection, which we'll talk, like I said, we'll talk about that after Easter. We'll talk about the resurrection. And he's talking about the fact that he is not, obviously he hasn't experienced resurrection yet. So as we pick up in 12, he's talking about that he's not at the end of his, his journey. So in verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained it, meaning resurrection, or have already become perfect. And remember, the word perfect doesn't mean our American version or English version of perfection, which means I have now hit 100%. What it means is I'm now complete. It's finished. I have completed it. Or have been become perfect or complete, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect or complete, have this attitude. And if anything you and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. All right, let's unpack that. There's a lot in there. We can't hit everything, but let's unpack that. Key verse for our purposes today is verse 18. For many walk, remember the word walk here just means a way of life. Their way of life, their walk, their way of life, in whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now the first thing we need to pay attention to is he says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. It doesn't say they're enemies of Christ. Now, that may be a distinction without a difference, but his word choice is going to matter. 
So I just want to call attention that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, what is the cross? Well, we talked about this. The cross is loss. The cross represents giving up. The cross represents death. The surrender. And they're enemies of that. So their lifestyle is the opposite of the denial and loss of the cross. And he goes through and he shows. He then spells out how that works. He spells out how that opposition to the cross works. First it says, their God is their appetite. Some of your translations might say stomach. Stomach is a more literal translation. It's a metaphor. Stomach is where you hunger. So hunger as a metaphor for what you desire, what you want, your appetite, your, your, what you wish for. So, so their God is what, what dictates to them, what controls them, is their appetite, their desire. Turn over real quick, don't lose your place, but back to Romans chapter 16, verse 18. Romans 16, verse 18. In Romans 16, verse 18, verse 17, he says he's talking about people who are turning them away from the truth, teaching contrary to what Paul has been teaching. And he says in verse 18, these people who are turning you away from the truth, such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. They're slaves not of Jesus, but of their own appetites. So they are controlled by their desires. So examples of this would be the idea of you can turn stones to bread. You know, we talked about this with Jesus. Turning stones to bread, looking for fame, looking for comfort. They are driven by their human desires, what we all hunger for. So that's the first thing. The second thing, it says their glory, whose glory is in their shame. Now, this one may trip us up a little. What does it mean their glory is in their shame? So I reworded it to help us understand it. How about this? It's a shame what they're proud of. It's a shame what they're proud of. In other words, it's not that they just are proud of terrible things. It's the things they're proud of they will be ashamed of later. There's a beautiful scene. It's one of my favorite scenes. I've, I've referenced it before here, so you probably, even if you haven't seen the movie, you may have heard me reference it. But the movie Schindler's List, it's a powerful movie. It's a brutal movie. But at the end of Schindler's List, here's this man, Schindler, who is a German businessman who has spent and pretty much destroyed his business by working to hire as many Jews as possible to keep them out of the gas chambers, to keep them out of the concentration camps. So he has saved all these lives from the Holocaust by, by creating, basically using his business just to save their lives. And now the war is over, and the Allies are advancing, and Germany is, is falling, and he's got he's to flee. He's got to flee so that, because he, as a Nazi, even though he's been a, kind of one of the good guys, people don't know that, so he's, he's trying to get out ahead of the invading forces. And there's a scene near the end of the movie as as all the Jews that he saved meet with him, as he and his wife are going to jump in the car and leave. And so he's surrounded by all these lives he saved, and he breaks down. Because he looks at the expensive car, and he's got an expensive coat, and he pulls a nice ring off his finger. 
And rather than going, wow, look what I did, he begins to just be devastated. And he pulls the ring off. He goes, why did I keep this? How many, how many, was, how many people was this worth? How many, why, why did I hold on to these things? How many lives could I, more lives could I have saved? And they're trying to reassure him. You know, you did good. But all he can see is he's ashamed. He's ashamed at things that he had valued that now he realizes they weren't what I should have valued. And he's devastated. What, how, more, how many more could I have saved? Was this ring worth two or three more people? Why did I keep the ring? And that's what this is talking about. The things that had been important. It was a shame that that was important. Because in the end, it wasn't what mattered. And their glory is in things that they, should later, they will later be ashamed of. They will come to understand that the things that they had gloried in, the things that mattered to them, it was a shame that they were proud of that. You may be proud now, but you won't be proud later. Okay, the third thing. It says their mind is on earthly things. And there's two ways that our mind can end up on earthly things. Two different ways. One is the one I think we most are familiar with and we tend to default to. And that's the idea of pleasure and comfort. Pleasure and comfort, living for ourselves. That's, that's the earthly things that we are most familiar with. And that's what we saw with Peter, with Jesus. Remember when Jesus says, I'm going to go up and die? And Peter said, no, 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 you won't die. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking, like, you're thinking about earthly things. You are worried about my comfort, not my sacrifice. And that's what we most think of, because we think of people who just live for themselves and live selfishly and indulge themselves. But there's a second way that you can have your mind on earthly things. And we talked about this a little bit last week, as we talked about the fact that worldly things can be religious. Worldly things can be religious. And a lot of times we don't guard ourselves on that side. Outward righteousness. Turn one, don't lose your place again, but turn one book forward. The next book, Colossians, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Colossians 2, 20 through 23, and look at this other warning of mind on earthly things. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, so there it is, these are the basics of the world. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Here he's warning against what for them would have been Jewish legalism, we would now have American or Baptist conservative legalism. But this severe outward righteousness. Last week we saw talking about circumcision, where it says they want to boast in circumcision. They want to boast in this outward demonstration of righteousness. And in Colossians, he says, these guys are sitting there going, you need to follow these rules. Don't touch, don't touch. And this severe treatment of the body looks very holy. He says, but it's actually part of the world. It's actually an earthly thing. And that blows our minds a little because it's religious, right? So aren't we talking about God? He says, no, that's actually the world. And that's Colossians. 
And sometimes we don't guard against that. So then what should be our focus? What is a, not an enemy of the cross? We find this back in verse 14. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The upward call prize. The prize of being called upward. This heavenly idea. Verse 20, he says, citizenship is in heaven. Philippians was a Roman city. It was not a Jewish city, it was a Roman city. So pretty much everyone he's talking to, or most everyone he's talking to, is probably a Roman citizen. Paul himself was a Roman citizen. But he says, actually, you're not. Your citizenship is in heaven. Now, these days, sometimes I read some very well-meaning people and blogs that says, well, you know, we have joint citizenship because we're citizens of heaven, but we're citizens of here. And that sounds really nice. The one thing that makes me very uncomfortable about that is you just don't find that biblically. The Bible doesn't talk about dual citizenship. It says, no, our citizenship is in heaven, not, well, we have both. No, it says our citizenship is in heaven. Here he says, he's not talking, he says, you, you might be Roman citizens, but you're not. You're citizens of heaven. Life is more than here. And so he says, so we eagerly, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking forward to what's to come, because the idea is it's not about now, it's about later. And then he says in verse 21, because we're, we're eager for Jesus to come back, why? Who will, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So he's talking about our flesh. Because sometimes people say, well, you are, you are not a body that has a soul, you're a soul that has a body. And that's a, that's a fun construction, and it's, it's, there's some truth there. But, but you are both. You are not a soul that happens to have a body and the body is giving your soul trouble. You are both. You are a body and soul. God made you as a unit. And the body part of us gives us a lot of trouble. Well, the soul can too. A sinful heart is as bad as a sinful body. So it's not just, well, the flesh is rotten and the spirit's great, because no, your spirit can be awful. But even after we have come to Christ, and, and he talks about, hey, I've come to Christ, he says, but man, this thing is still, I still have these old desires that hang on. And I still have these things that urge me in the wrong direction. And he says, I can't wait till God fixes that. And I eagerly wait for when he will transform the body of our humble state. Now, if I were to die today, I would temporarily lose the physical part of me. I'd leave it behind. And we talk about that when we talk about that at funerals, the earthly tent. But as we will learn as we talk about the resurrection, I don't lose this for good. I get it back. And when I get it back, it's going to be fixed. And it's not going to give me all the grief it gives me now, especially with every birthday. It comes up with new ways to give me grief. Man, I used to be able to eat anything. Now I walk by food and I'm up all night. I didn't even eat it. And I can't sleep. I'm like, what are you doing to me? I get it back. I'm not going to be a ghost. I'm going to have a body. But he's going to transform the body of my humble state into a body that conforms to his glory, into a body that doesn't give me grief anymore. That's what I'm looking forward to. 
but to apply it. So, so the idea is less now, more later. This isn't a story. We hunger for the small things now at the expense of the abundant life later. I mean, think about it. That's why I talked about that with the children's message. The snow melts away. A lot of us are building snow forts. It's going to melt. The Bible says the whole planet's going to melt with heat. But then the planet, that's not the end of the story for the planet either, right? New heaven, new earth. The old things have passed away. And then, so I'll tell you, a million years from now, where we're all hanging out, these first 50, 70, 80, how many years you get? It's going to seem like a couple of hours. These years matter, but they're short. They seem like all we know right now, but they're short. But so often, this is all we're investing in is these few moments of our lives. But they're just the beginning. And they're not even the best moments by any stretch. I hope not. Oh, my word. Can you imagine if this was the high point? Oh, my word, no. So we have two calls. Two calls that come into us. And the first one is the one he talks about here, the upward call, the prize. The call that says there's more. There's a higher reality. There's a greater reality. There's a bigger story than the few years on a fallen, sinful planet, striving and struggling. The upward call of God. But then there's this other call, which is our instincts, our flesh, that says, you need to focus on now. You need to focus on now. And we strive and we fight and we push and we work for things now. Because that's our human nature. Now, if you've ever worked with kids, if you've had kids, if you've been a child, but you might not have remembered it when you were a child because you were busy in it. But this happens on a daily basis at my house. It becomes mealtime. Meals require preparation. Sometimes an hour or two of work, depending on what the meal is looking like. You know, you've got three or four different things cooking and baking and making and Tables need to be set and all that. But the child comes to you and goes, I'm hungry. Can I have food? Like, no. Why not? I'm hungry. Because we're going to eat supper in about an hour. An hour? This poor child is not going to live to see that time. But mom, I'm starving. Yeah, hey. like an hour, just why don't we make it a thousand years, come on, I need to eat now, no, you need to wait, oh. this tragedy plays out on a daily basis in the whole household, I'm hungry now, and if we give in, we know what happens now or later, I'm not that hungry, you know what they're especially not hungry for? The vegetable dish. I mean, the hamburger's great, but broccoli? I'm full. Well, that's because an hour ago, you weren't interested in broccoli. You were interested in a granola bar or a candy bar or something. Snack crackers. Amen. Hallelujah. But that's all of us. We, rec we recognize it readily in children. But again, we say, but I want it now. 
I need this now. You know, and whatever that urge or desire is, and it doesn't mean they're bad desires, they're, they're real life hungers, companionship, money, ease, rest. So I just, I just want this now. And we will sometimes fight very, very hard for that now at the expense of later. Because later seems a long ways away. Later seems too hard. Now, there are two ways that we can do this. So one is the good life. And there's even two ways to pursue the good life. We talked about this a minute ago, but let's talk about it a little more. Because one way of the good life, this is the one that pastors can get a lot of mileage out of. Because it's the life of debauchery and indulgence. Let's talk about the sins of doing too much of the wrong things. So I can go on and on about drinking or drugs or sex or whatever. You know, it's good stuff. Great preaching material there. Because one of the ways that we pursue it is, hey, I need, I need more. And it's the life of what can I accumulate? Toys, experiences, whatever. But then there's a variation on this. Because remember I said you can be religious. In fact, you can even be Christian. I'm going to put that in quotes. And still have this. The idea that God wants you to have your best life now. That God doesn't mean for you to suffer. God doesn't mean for you to go without. God wants you to just have everything that you want. And if you really love God and God really loves you, then you should just, it should just, man, the waves should be paved and the goodness and the, let the blessings flow. And you should have enough money and stuff and ease. And I'm like, did you read this? Because, yeah, there's, there's verses about blessing in here. But the cross. And this is why we say, that they are enemies, and that's why I think it so matters to pay attention to the words that Paul uses. He says, they are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there's a lot of preachers who will talk about Jesus a ton, but they promise you that you shouldn't suffer, you shouldn't hurt, you shouldn't go without, that Jesus just means for you to be sitting in the lap of luxury. And if you have enough faith, and if you don't, well then, man, you need to repent, and you need to stop whatever's blocking you from experiencing all the goodness. Well, that sounds good if you ignore that the fact that the cross represents loss. It represents sacrifice and death. And their teaching ignores that. It ignores it. Why? Because they are enemies of the cross because they'll talk about Jesus all you want but not Jesus on the cross it's all about hey and like I said don't ever try to convince me that I should try to have my best life here and now oh my word that's be so sad it better what's to come isn't going to hold a candle to the best day I can have now it's a snow fort on a summer day. And God is not so poor as to settle for so, such a temporary thing, which is what Jesus said, right? Don't make your treasure here. 
And we have seen even these ministries that are built around this idea of selling you on best life. Now, what happens? They accumulate a lot of it for you, from you. And then what usually happens at some point? And it blows up on them. Why? Because it was the world. Now, so this, that's a dangerous teaching. It's a dangerous teaching. Or, and this is again where we sometimes forget our guard because we maybe we're all good to guard against that. Strict righteousness by following strict rules and harsh standards and hard-nosed righteousness. Because what happens there? I'm going to follow the strict rules and the strict righteousness, hard-nosed, boom, boom, boom. Why? So that I can be a good Christian. And pretty soon we sound like the Pharisees. Lord, I thank you that I am not like those people. I mean, I know those people say they love you, but they just don't get it like I do. I'm a good Christian. You know what? I, I do it the right way. I'm the right kind of Christian. And you're always working to try to get that spiritual A+. plus. God wants you to get a spiritual A+. plus. God is grading you. He is sitting there. Did you get a spiritual A+, plus today? Did you have your devotions? Did you pray enough? Did you give enough? Did you dress right? Did you not smoke, drink, or chew and hang out with those who do? The old rhyme? Did you get your spiritual A+. plus? But we saw that that also becomes what? It becomes about you. Look what a good job I'm doing. And Paul, Paul said, that's the kind of guy I was. Paul was very religious. And he pursued God. And he said, I thought I was the best guy around. I was, I was winning at God. I had an A+. And he goes, and all those things that I thought were a gain to me, I now consider garbage. It's rubbish, Paul said. In exchange for, he says, that I might know him in the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. Paul had learned that rather than trying to get a spiritual A+, plus, he was going to embrace the cross, which was suffering and death. He said, so that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, which is where we'll go next after this series. And so in both cases, whether it's I'm going to live the good life or I'm going to live a life of spiritual denial for the sake of being outwardly righteous, both can make you an enemy of the cross. And that messes with our head because I'm like, but I'm doing good things. Yeah, there's a lot of good people doing good things. And he says, and I tell you, Paul says with weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ because what's driving them? They are driving them. They are driving them, their urges, and their focus on earthly things. And so they have become enemies of the cross. Because what does the cross represent? Well, that's why we started with the song. We're going to end with the song, too. We're going to sing the same, same song twice. I looked it up. Apparently, you're allowed to. I double-checked. Didn't want to get in trouble. Leave behind your regret and mistakes. Leave it behind. Lay it down. The cross represents surrender. Laying aside the effort that goes into spiritual success or failure.
Last week when we sang the wonderful cross, I think it was last week, my richest gains I count but loss. All the vain things that charm me most, all the empty things that most capture my attention, he goes, I sacrifice them to his blood. I give up all these meaningless accomplishments. It's not about that I, what, how good I'm being as a Christian. It's not about how successful I'm being at life, how well I'm accumulating the things of this world. It's about Jesus, who gave up his God, exercise of his Godhood for me, who loved me and died for me, and who I eagerly await and say, well, what's, what's your life about? Him. It's about Him. There's a new world coming. I can't wait. Father, thank you so much that you have done the work, that your work is sufficient and enough. It is finished. You have paid the price for our rebellion and sin. You have redeemed us. You have restored us. Lord, we know that we have not, as, as Paul said, we, we have not obtained it all yet. We're not done. But we press on and we, we look upward. We aim upward. We live upward. And Lord, as the world is constantly trying to drag us into its, its framework of success, its framework and focus on getting ahead of winning, of dominating, of achieving, Lord, we live lives of the cross, embracing a God who gave it all up to die on our behalf. And Lord, now we lay down our lives for one another. We demonstrate to the world that rather than beat them, we want to win them. We give them the option of getting out of this rat race, getting away from the constant striving and surrendering and living in the grace and mercy of the cross. The favor poured out on us that we do not deserve, that we will never deserve, and yet is freely and fully ours. Behold what manner of love that you have had for us that we would be called your children. That you have declared us righteous, not because we were good, but because you were good. And Lord, may we each day Stay away from the religions, from the indulging, from the passing pleasures that are passing away, the hollow victories and momentary wins, pleasures, things that won't last and won't be worth it. We won't be glad we did it. And Lord, we pray for all those who are lost in this right now. Some of them are even seeking after you, but they've fallen under teachers that are misleading them, telling them that either they have to be good or telling them that they need not repent, but merely indulge. Lord, in both cases, that they would be freed from such traps to know the God who loved them enough to die. And Lord, may we, as a church here at Beans Corner, be the people 
who proclaim, show, demonstrate, and live that hope each day. The freedom that comes from embracing your cross. Be with us as we finish this series and as we move towards celebrating your resurrection and understanding what that means for us. May we be transformed each day of our week by you. Thank you, Father. Be with us as we live out our week in this real world. May we be lights for you. In Jesus' name, amen.